0: In an article titled, Teaching Our Girls to Say No, Abigail Dodds, the author of various books and a regular contributor at DesiringGod.org, writes in World News Group, and I quote, "...the unbelieving world often considers female submission to males backward or an outdated religious practice among conservative Christians. Yet as highlighted by the presence of Leah Thomas," a male swimmer who identifies as a woman on the University of Pennsylvania women's swim team, the non-Christian world requires the wrong kind of female submission, a form that is as perverse as it is pervasive. From Target to the public schools, girls and women are expected to obey the rules of politically radical men, especially if those men claim to be women. The Scriptures affirm a fitting pattern and design with clear limits and boundaries when it comes to the Christian idea of submission. Wives submit to their husbands, which means a wife necessarily will not submit to all other men around her. Church members submit to their pastors and elders, which means they necessarily will not be submitting to pastors and elders of other churches. In every case, Christians must obey God rather than their fellow man when there is a contradiction between the two. Yet American society is demanding that its young women become doormats when faced with the unwanted lewd exposure of a man's genitals in spaces that used to be reserved for women. For example, when young women on the Penn's swim team repeatedly asked their coaches if Thomas could change clothes away from the rest of the team, the coaches refused. We were basically told that we could not ostracize Leah, one swimmer reported, and that there's nothing we can do about it, and that we basically have to roll over and accept it, or we cannot use our own locker room. You see, every state, and I'm still quoting, every state in the union has a law against indecent exposure. Pennsylvania law specifically states it is illegal to expose oneself in a public place, or any place where other people are present under circumstances in which the offender knows or should know the conduct is likely to offend, affront, or alarm. It seems obvious that Thomas' self-exposure has met that criteria, yet rather than hold him accountable, Sports Illustrated calls reporting on his locker room habits cruel, turning the man who indecently exposes himself to a locker room full of young women into a victim, and the women who asked if they can avoid it into perpetrators." From a Christian perspective, it's incumbent on fathers and mothers to do more, but not less, than send letters or petitions to the universities and institutions whose policies, if submitted to, would harm their daughters and their sons. It's incumbent upon Christian parents to do more than take to Twitter or Facebook to express their views or outrage. Christian fathers and mothers must train their daughters when and how to say no and to resist the unholy submission demanded by the world. Christian parents have failed them if our daughters are 18 or 20 years old and aren't sure what to do when faced with a man in their locker room. Like the Hebrew midwives who disobeyed Pharaoh's demand that they kill Hebrew boys, our daughters must know when to disobey. Like Ruth who refused to return to Moab and the Moab gods insisting she stay with Naomi and the one true God, our daughters, must know where their loyalties lie. Like Sarah, who didn't fear anything frightening, we must teach our daughters to be courageous in times of trial. May our Christian daughters not waver for a moment on that choice. They need the courage and fortitude to do what is right, even at the cost of their athletic goals or academic achievements or job opportunities. But they won't know how to do that if Christian dads and moms haven't taught and modeled it in their own lives, whether in the HR meeting or the play date discussion Our immovable convictions lived out before our children for their good will strengthen them when facing their own battles. Close quote. What does the Bible teach us about submission, living as exiles in this strange world? How should Christians honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor as according to 1 Peter 2.17 When as Dr. Albert Moeller describes, we are living in a time when the cases, like the above mentioned, reveals nothing less than a deep insanity that is now gripping our culture, a communal act of mass delusion. When our society at large, our government officials, our faculty of universities, the administrators of those universities, the leaders of organized sports, the media, Hollywood, the therapeutic industry, the political class, all are in lockstep agreement it's telling us to accept a lie, to support that delusion, and if you stand up against it, you are hateful, backward, and bigoted, or much worse. In a day when the words of Romans 1 is found ever to be true, therefore God gave them up upon the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, in such a time as this. Why is it important that we rightly understand what Scripture teaches about how wives and husbands should relate? We're continuing our study through 1 Peter in our series titled Hope in a Hostile World, and we're picking back up where we left off last Sunday from 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 7, considering what it means for wives to be subject to your own husbands and what it means for husbands to live with your wives in an understanding way. And I pray by God's help and guidance, the force and the urgency of this often misunderstood and misapplied passage will be rightly applied and communicated to you in a way we come to grips, we come to our senses, if you will, of the weightiness of the passage before us today again. Why it speaks so much of our profession of faith in the only true God of the Scriptures and of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Why us understanding this passage Rightly means so much for our sons and daughters, and why it means so much for our corporate witness as Christians in our confused and lying culture. Let me tell you again everyone has a part, married or single, young or old, new Christians or mature Christians. We cannot fight the good fight for healthy biblical marriages and healthy biblical understanding of identity, creation, order, and our maleness and femaleness alone. We can't do it alone. May the Lord unite us. May the Lord give us a resilient perseverance. May the Lord grant us holy vigilance when it comes to protecting our homes and all its related parts. The discussion of singleness, purity, dating, sexual ethics, marriage. May we as Christians not leave it to the changing culture or partisan politicians to determine for us the truths which are clearly defined for us in scriptures. Amen? Amen? Last Sunday, I shared with you three reasons why, as elect exiles, we Christians are good spouses. Point number one, from verses one to two, the witness of godly submission, the witness of godly submission. From verses three through six, the preciousness of fearless faith. And point number three, from verse seven, the power of marital unity. And last week, I wasn't able to get to point three, so what I, what I want to do today is clarify point number one, expand point number two. And drive it home with point number three. So without further ado, would you look at the passage with me? First Peter chapter three verses one through seven, which will be found on page one thousand fifteen of the Blue Bibles around you. Please keep your Bibles open throughout the entire duration of the message and follow along. If you're new to reading the Bible, the large numbers are the chapter numbers, the small numbers are the verse numbers. So first Peter chapter three, verses one through seven. And again by the way if you do not have a bible to read at home please take one of those blue bibles with you as a gift from us to help you grow in studying God's word. First Peter chapter 3 verses 1 through 7 says this. Likewise wives be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see a respectful and pure conduct Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So here's a little bit more clarity in point number one, the witness of godly submission from verses 1 to 2. Last Sunday I shared with you, according to verses 1 and 2, the reason why Christian wives submit to their own husbands, and specifically wives only to their own husbands, and not wives to all men, The purpose of it is for evangelism. You see that in the second part of verse 1, don't you? It says, So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. I shared with you that in my understanding, though many commentators argue that Peter is instructing wives of unbelieving husbands, in verses 1 and 2, I agree with Wayne Grudem here that the phrase, Even if some do not obey the word, shows that unbelieving husbands addressed are the exception and not the majority. Wives with believing husbands are also instructed here. And I'll get to the implications of what that means in a bit. But first, Peter is instructing wives to be subject to their own husbands, even those who are unbelievers, in order to win them over to the faith without a word by their pure conduct, not by nagging, not by incessantly badgering with words for their husbands to believe or be better leaders at home, but by their godliness. Of course, not exclusively through their actions. Of course, no one comes to faith apart from hearing the gospel ultimately by God's grace and power. Romans ten seventeen. faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. And even in 1 Peter 1:23, Peter himself says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. But what verses 1 and 2 simply meant uh, is, let the wives' lives testify of their profession of faith. Peter was saying, let the life of the wife speak a louder, better, clearer word of their trust in Christ and belief in the gospel. So that the unbelieving husband would see the way in which their wives serve and submit to them and see how the wife's submission to Christ affects every part of their lives. And eventually through it, hopefully by God's mercy, that the unbelieving husband will trust in Christ also. That much is very clear from verses 1 and 2. But I believe there's more to it here in these verses than wives just winning over their non-believing husbands. as awesome and powerful such witness of a faithful wife is to non-believing husbands and to the world. I believe the Scripture's instruction to wives apply to those who have believing husbands also. Verses 5 through 6 supports this claim. Look at verse 5 and 6. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord. Sarah certainly had a believing husband, Abraham, whom Romans 4.16 refers to as the father of us all, all believers. And not only that, we see that Peter addresses believing husbands in verse 7, don't we? After all, this letter is addressed to elect exiles, men and women, who have been born again to a living hope, and how they should conduct themselves in all areas of life, living in a secular society that is hostile to Christians, that persecute Christians simply because of their faith in Christ. So then, what does it mean for wives with believing husbands to win over their husbands through their submission by their pure conduct in the fear of the Lord? That's the meaning of the word respectful in the ESV translation in its original definition, in the fear of the Lord. I believe these verses point out to us the painful reality of some or many Christian husbands who at times fall into disobedience. Christian husbands who claim to love Jesus, who claim to follow Jesus, yet by their disobedience to the word, they actually testify of something entirely contrary. Christian church-going husbands who in front of others may seem all put together, who may seem to be faithful members and deacons and even pastors at church, who may seem to be diligent and accomplished workers and trustworthy neighbors, yet in the privacy of their own homes. They are addicted to pornography and other sinful sins, inclined to selfishness, prone to abusing authority, or on the other hand, entirely relinquishing their authority by their passivity, lacking gentleness and patience with their wives, in the habit of exasperating their children into fearful compliance rather than loving trust. Christian husbands who stumble in sin by their rejection of the word, to their own soul's peril, but more so to the misfortunate reverberating and cyclical effect of the absentee husband and father, which is so reflective of so many husbands of our generation. Absent to his wife, absent to his children, and you know it affects generations to follow. In a room this size, I wonder how many of us share in the burden and baggage of the absentee father and the abusive father and the passive father. Man, it takes years to work through and heal from all that, even as Christians, doesn't it? I think these verses hit home to every male who has an innate disposition to either overrule or underrule in their homes over their families in a God-dishonoring way. And it points out the very important purpose of godly wives and godly mothers who hold it together And hold fast because of their trust and hope in God. Wives are precious God-sent, God-designed helpers to husbands. That was true in creation according to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, which reads, Then the Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Get the original purpose and intention of God's creation, brothers and sisters. God created man and woman in his image, not only so that they will be happy with themselves, the woman was created as a helper suitable for man, that we together would obey and glorify God together in unity, that we would reflect who God is in his perfect trinity. Amen? The idea of the helper does not make the woman in any sense of lesser importance in essence and in dignity at all. Just as the Holy Spirit, who is referred to by Jesus himself in John 14, 16, as a helper is not the lesser member of the Trinity in any sense whatsoever. The Bible has always been consistently clear. God's purpose and intention for creation and for redemption, right here in Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 through 31, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. The fact of the matter was Peter's words were entirely counter-cultural in its context in the first century and over many, many centuries actually to follow. In a society and in a time where women were expected to follow the religion of their husbands, And when women were largely overlooked and overshadowed by their husbands as second-class citizens, the fact that Peter was addressing wives at all was surprising and shocking in their day. No other human literature, no other religious document has been more consistent than this Bible, that man and woman have significant and equal value in the eyes of God, though different and distinct we have different roles to fulfill for God's glory and for our good. Peter's words were a necessary admonition to Christian wives who found freedom in Christ that they did not enjoy anywhere else in society. Peter is addressing women, especially wives, as independent moral agents whose decisions to follow and hope in Christ had God-designed purpose. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, Live such good lives among the pagans That though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation when he returns. And Peter doesn't overlook wives, wives of both unbelieving and believing husbands. He says, God says, you matter. Your work is important. Your wifing is evangelistic. And not only that, it's a significant part of helping your husband toward faithfulness. You see, over 2,000 years later, after these words were penned by Peter, the nature of the home hasn't improved, you see. Without having to cite a bunch of sobering statistics on how marriage has fallen on hard times in recent decades, the truth that marriage is sanctifying, that marriage is hard, that marriage is a covenant, that marriage is hard work, that marriage without Christ at the center is impossible, is a reality that Christianity does not dodge or avoid, or repress. Edmund Clowney, in his commentary, says Peter sees the impossible position of the Christian wife as a remarkable opportunity to bear witness to Christ. Brother John McKinney noted to me the significance of the word one in the phrase, they may be one without a word. He mentioned to me how Peter is instructing wives to win over their husbands with a conduct that is winning. Winning how we typically view women in a passive role as the one a man pursues but this word in first peter 3 the role of the wife is a distinctly active role with an objective purpose and i would add an empowering purpose for wives whereas the curse of genesis chapter 3:16 predicted in our fallenness the wife's desire will be contrary to her husband Whereas in sinful depravity, the wife desires to win over or overthrow or overcompensate the husband's authority, good or bad, in light of Christ's finished work, the wife's desire to win over her husband is redemptive, to win over his heart toward faithfulness in Christ rather than in contradiction or defiance. Isn't that beautiful? What a picture of the gospel godly wives are what a picture of Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, according to Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Godly, submissive wives point us to Christ. So, dear wives of NCBC, please continue in your faithful service and trust in Christ. Please continue in your diligent and proactive work in winning over your husbands toward faithfulness and leadership by your help. And brothers and sisters in Christ, may we support and encourage and pray for our married sisters generously and regularly. Amen? And if there are any wives here or listening who have given up hope in their husbands, whether believing or unbelieving, for any wives who have become so discouraged and disappointed by the failure of their husbands, let me encourage you this afternoon, hope in Christ. Look to Christ. He, the better and greater husband, will not fail or disappoint you. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, your salvation. Point number two, The Preciousness of Fearless Faith from verses 3 through 6. And last Sunday, I attempted to bring out, similarly to point number one, Sarah, who the author Peter holds up as the exemplary wife. Sarah has dropped everything, uprooted herself from her home, and followed Abraham toward his Godward calling, didn't she? Sarah could have said, what? God told you to leave this country and your father's house and your land and trust in a promise that you'll never see or experience with your own eyes? She could have said, "Uh uh-uh, I ain't into that. But what does Sarah do? She submitted. In at least two occasions, Genesis 12 and Genesis 20, Abraham, knowing Sarah's beauty, instructs her to lie to foreign kings that she is not his wife, rather that she is his sister, so that his life, can be spared. Basically, he was saying to Sarah, even if the king takes advantage of you, if it means I live, just say, you're my sister. Two occasions, Sarah could have said, I'm done. I'm done with you. Yet, Sarah submitted. In another occasion in Genesis 16, Abraham and Sarah are struggling to trust in God's promise of a son in their old age. And Sarah suggests that Abraham go into her servant, Hagar. Now, this kind of open marriage may have been acceptable in the ancient world as Abraham was coming out of a paganistic culture to follow God's covenant. But one thing the scripture makes clear, no wife is happy about marital unfaithfulness. In Genesis 16, verse 4, it says, And Sarah saw that Hagar had conceived, and she looked with contempt on her mistress. And in verse 5, Sarah says to Abraham, may the wrong you've done to me be on you. And certainly, there were some tense moments in their marriage. Can you just imagine? Certainly, Sarah had reasons to doubt Abraham and whatever promise of God he held to. We read in Genesis eighteen twelve, Sarah herself struggled with doubts, even laughed at the thought of God's prophecy that she should have a child at such an old age. Yet, Peter holds her up as an exemplary wife of fearless faith, which was very precious in God's sight, according to 1 Peter 3.6. Why? How come? Because although in her humanity she struggled and doubted, and even despite her husband's inept leadership in so many occasions and his failure to protect and lead her, Sarah simply did not give up by God's grace and by his mercy. I shared with you uh, last week David Helm's insight how Sarah's laughter of doubt and unbelief is redeemed into the laughter of the woman who fears the Lord in Proverbs 31:25 where it says strength and dignity are her clothing and she laughs with joy at the time to come. How do I know? Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11 real fast. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. And look at verse 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11. Honey actually pointed this out to us at EMP. In the hall of fame of faithful men in Hebrews 11. Look at verse 11. It says, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age since she considered him, Jesus, faithful who had promised. The KJV translation says, through faith, Sarah received strength. Her faith in Christ, brothers and sisters, made her strong. Her faith in Christ made her a recipient of God's grace. Amen? Her faith in Christ made her an inheritor of God's covenant blessings. Her faith in Christ made her into the hall of fame of faithful men and women. And she is held up as an example by Peter of fearless faith, precious in God's eyes. Friends and visitors, I wonder if you know the reason for such fearless faith. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the good news of Jesus Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. The best news of God, that He is the creator of the universe, who made the world, who made man and woman in His image, that we would know His glory. And though man and woman chose sin over and over and over again, over God, which resulted in us being eternally separated from God and rightly condemned to death and eternal punishment in hell, God had a plan from the very beginning, before the foundation of the world, to save wretched sinners for us to know His redeeming love. And that plan was to send His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, who is truly God and truly man, to live the life that we could not live by His perfect obedience to the Father, to die the death that we should have died by His willing submission to the Father's will as our substitute, to suffer the punishment of God's wrath we would have suffered in eternal hell. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin on our behalf in order that our unrighteousness be placed on Him at the cross and His righteousness imputed to us. But although he died for our sins, Jesus did not remain dead, did he? He rose again on the third day because God accepted his sacrifice and raised him up from the dead. The wrath of God fully satisfied, the punishment fully paid, canceled forever. That anyone who would repent of their sins and believe that Jesus died and rose again and trust in him as Lord and Savior will be raised with him to new life and eternal life with him forever when he returns. Friend, if you are here and you are not a Christian, thank you so much for being here today. You could be anywhere, taking a nap, watching TV, but you are here. And I believe that the Lord has led you here. And so I want to ask you some important questions. Who do you cling to when you have no hope? What foundation can you stand on when all around you is hopeless? When all things are changing so fast and they are, I want to tell you that there is one who you can depend on who will never change. Scripture says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if you hear his voice in your heart right now, this moment, do not resist. Don't leave this place without talking to someone about how you can follow Jesus. Simply, you can repent of your sins. That means turn from trusting in the things of this world that are quickly fleeting. Believe that Jesus died and rose again for you. And trust him with your whole life. For today and tomorrow and forevermore, trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Talk to any of us today. I'll be standing at the back door at the close of service. Pastor Jeremy at the outside door. John, our service leader at this door. We want to talk to you how you can follow Christ starting today. Dear brothers and sisters of NCBC, are you discouraged perhaps in your doubts? Are you disappointed by those around you and by your circumstances? Are you discouraged by your burdens and worries and anxieties? And there's so much, so much of it in our world today. I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, trust in Christ by godly submission, as Sarah did in fearless faith. This faith doesn't require you to be perfect at all. This faith requires you to trust in the one who is perfect for all. Point number three, the power of marital unity from verse seven. Look at that verse with me. It says this. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Here is a unique or particular word to husbands in a section dedicated to instructing wives, in a larger section dedicated to instructing servants and aliens, strangers, sojourners, in a section dedicated to instructing those of a disadvantaged standing, Peter instructs husbands. He didn't instruct masters, but he's instructing husbands. Why? I think Peter means to emphasize this biblical marital union does not work by the wife alone. Marriage is a two-way street. But more importantly, I think Peter is emphasizing this and showing us in one verse. Six verses dedicated to the wife, but one verse dedicated to the husband. Why? Because Peter is emphasizing, Peter is drawing attention and trying to teach us something that is meaningful. Now, I already shared with you from last week what marriage points to. The entire purpose of marriage is this, Ephesians 5, 32. This mystery is profound. This mystery is mind-blowing, referring to the one-flesh union of a husband and a wife because why? Because it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage points us to the most intimate relationships that is even far beyond a relationship between a husband and a wife to Christ and the church. Peter says to husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. By understanding way, it does mean husbands ought to know their wives well in every aspect of the one flesh union, A husband ought to know his own wife intimately, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. He ought to not be a dumb ignorant when it comes to his wife. A husband ought to have a PhD in his wife. What she likes, where she is strong, where she is weak, what makes her happy, what makes her sad, what helps her feel encouraged, what helps her feel loved, Husbands, let me tell you again, emphasize again, as your pastor, no excuse for you to say, I didn't know that. Learn, ask, find out. Live with your wives in an understanding way. So many applications for those who are desiring marriage, especially brothers, get to a place where you could handle this great responsibility. Amen? Stop asking girls on dates, if you don't know how to do this properly. I'll just stop there because... (laughs) (laughs) It says, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Is anyone offended by this statement? Showing honor to the woman, to the weaker vessels, and instruction to the husbands. I want to say, don't be, sisters, if you are offended. It is an honest and truthful reality of what makes beautiful God's creation. To deny that there are distinctions between a man and a woman the way that God intended it is to deny God himself. That's why in our crazy, deluded world, we are not arguing about trans women competing in men's sports. We are arguing the other way around, aren't we? The fact that women are generally weaker vessels does not diminish their value and dignity whatsoever. That's the next phrase, since they are heirs with you in the grace of life. The Bible has been clear from start to finish that the inheritors of God's redemption and eternal salvation are both men and women, co-heirs, equal but distinct recipients of God's grace and mercy. That's why Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, not in the worldly sense. For you are all one in Christ, equal in dignity, nature, essence, value, everything. I love the final phrase of verse 7. So that your prayers may not be hindered. Simply, an ungodly husband is an ungodly Christian. A husband who does not live with his wife in an understanding way, a husband who does not honor their wives as the weak vessel, is no better than a reprobate. God will not listen to such a man's prayers if they refuse to serve their wives in this God honoring way. Such a husband will not experience God's blessing and favor. God's saying, Don't come to me and pray to me unless you go apologize to your wife first. Go honor your wife, care for your wife, love your wife before you lift up any prayers to me. The phrase, your prayers, is plural. It indicates that husbands ought to lead his wife in praying to the Lord. Don't be all holy, brothers, by yourselves, husbands specifically. Lead your wife. Honor your wife. Pray with your wife. Love your wife as Christ loves the church. This is the power of marital unity. A biblical marriage points to Christ and the church. This is what it means It is not good for man to be alone. This is what Scripture means. Two are better than one. Brothers and sisters, simply to all brothers and sisters in Christ, we are better together. This is true of marriage as it is true of the local church. We are better together. In an age of great confusion and delusion over God's creation, let me end with this encouraging word from Joe Ridney the new president of Bethlehem College and Seminary, he answers the question very clearly, what is a woman? He defines it in this way. A woman is a member of the human species with two X chromosomes. A woman is made in God's image, sent on God's mission for his glory. Every woman is a daughter of human parents. She is a potential mother and sister Even if because of the brokenness of this world, she doesn't ever bear biological children or have biological siblings, she carries this maternal and sisterly nature into all of her relationships. The Bible tells us that woman was taken out of man and made for man, thus making her the glory of man. Fundamentally, she receives in order to give more. She is the life bringer and life bearer. Her body was designed to nourish and nurture, to feed and console. She is a garden designed to receive seed and bear fruit 30, 60, and hundredfold. This is what women do. Receive in order to give more. Receive and glorify. Receive and beautify. Receive and amplify. She has an unimaginable influence on those around her, parents, siblings, husband, children, and friends. Though she is the weaker vessel... The power she wields for good or ill is remarkable. It's why Solomon looked upon his bride and declared, Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? Brothers and sisters, may you remember the witness of godly submission in marriage. May you remember the preciousness of fearless faith. And may you remember the power of oneness as we are about to participate in the table of the Lord, remember that Jesus Christ has made a way for you and me to be reconciled as a body, as a corporate body, beyond maleness and femaleness, beyond conflicts, beyond problems that we have. In Christ, we have forgiveness. In Christ, we have redemption. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves before you Father, as we examine our lives and our hearts and as we reflect on our practices, according to the text, there are so many ways that we fall short. But Father, we thank you for the reminder that even as broken as we are, even as so many times we have failed you, we have hope because of Christ. We have hope because of Christ. Father, may the faith that you have gifted us be our strength into final glory, we pray. Unite us all the more. Bless our marriages. Bless our hope in you. Strengthen us in our faith. We remember the sacrifice of your son as we participate in this table. In Jesus' name.